Hey, we are, this is the last week we're going to do this series on the Bible Mythbusters. And what we've been doing is taking a look at things that you know, are or are not in the Bible, or maybe just misrepresentations of what are actually in the Bible, or maybe people have misunderstood about what the Bible says. Uh, so we've been trying to bust some of the myths about Scripture. And I just wanted to encourage you again for you to be in Scripture. I'll, I'll, in advance, I'll just tell you a little bit about where we're going with this. That's what we're talking about. I wanted to just whet your appetite Whet your appetite a little bit more for you to dig in deeper to the Word of God. It is the ever-living, breathing Word of God. I know I quoted this to you a few weeks ago, but somebody once said that this is the only book that the author is present with you as you read it. It's amazing. You know, so many times you might read an author and be a little confused and wonder, I wonder what they're really getting at here. Well, one thing about God is you can just ask Him, God, show me what you're trying to say. Make something come become more alive to me. And I'm sure you've experienced this if you've been a Christian for a while where you'll read a passage and then read it again and then find something new in it and you're thinking, I can't believe that you're showing me something new in a passage of Scripture that I've read so many times. You know, maybe going back even to childhood, but, you're, but he does that. It's a wealth of knowledge. And I know a few weeks ago I gave, uh, I gave out kind of that reading plan that I've been doing that I really endorse. I love it. It's, it's a Professor Horner's reading plan. You're reading 10 chapters a day and you're going through different parts of the Bible, and what ends up happening is they start to speak to each other at the same time. So, for instance, today, I'm reading in the book of Exodus where Moses is getting the law, and he's talking about not forsaking the law, and he's talking about that kind of thing. Then I'm reading, and he's talking about the mediator, the priest system, and then I was reading in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews is talking about how this system that was set up in the, in the wilderness, and I'm thinking, oh, how funny, I just read that you know, a minute ago, and it's saying the system that was set up in the wilderness was, was just an image, a shadow of what is real, and that, that this is an image of what is to come and what is here, and now we have a high priest that doesn't, you know, that doesn't just do sacrifices for himself, but he literally does it for us. And I was just, just amazed at just how it just comes more alive that way. So I encourage you, to get into that. So today, here we are. We're going to talk about some things. Um, how many think this phrase would be found in the Bible? Fat cats. Now, to be fair, this is not King James. And, and I don't know, you know, how... Like, let me just do a survey real quickly. How many of you tend to use NIV the most? How about um, New American Standard Bible? And how about um, King James? How about um, New Living Translation? Okay, what other translations do you like? Say a little louder. Oh, ESV? Yeah, I like that too. What, anybody else? Amplified Bible? Yeah, that's great too. Let me, let me just give you a quick, uh, just a quick, um, and this, this wasn't part of this, but the, the NASB is, is similar in a lot of ways to the King James because what they tried to do with the NASB and the King James is, is maintain the syntax, the word order of the original languages in Hebrew and Greek. So that's why in a lot of times with both those versions, you will get a, um, they sound maybe a little more formal or, um, I don't know, sometimes for me, because I grew up with King James, it sounds more spiritual almost. You know, and then with the NIV and the NLT, they are more modern translations at a more basic reading level. And so they may be more understandable, but not, not sometimes have that air of, you know, that sound to them that we may be used to. So, so this is the New Living Translation where it says fat cats. So New Living Translation in Psalm 73, it says, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. But I wanted to show you what it does say, for instance, the NASB. Their eye bulges from fatness. 
which, you know, it has meaning, but not quite the same. And the imaginations of their heart uh, run riot. How about this phrase, windbags? I just I got to it too quick there. <laughs> but it is a New Living Translation again. God's prophets are all windbags who don't really speak for him. Let their predictions of disaster fall on themselves. So I went ahead and threw up there again the NASB, and this is out of Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 13. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. So you see how it's, it is, this, it is you know, conveying that message just in a little bit different, different way there. How about this idea, though? You know, you've probably seen where somebody kind of winks at evil. You know, that, that idea, that phrase that we kind of wink at it, we don't really take it seriously, we kind of play with it. I never would have thought that would be in Scripture, but it's there. In Proverbs 10.10, people who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. In other words, stand up to what's wrong. Don't just wink at it. When the storms of life come, the wicked are whirled away, but the godly have a lasting foundation. It's also found in Proverbs, kind of that same idea in Proverbs 6.13, signaling their deceit with a wink of the eye, a nudge of the foot, or a wiggle of the fingers. That's crazy. I never would have thought that would have been in the Bible. How about this idea, lazy bones? Again, that's, that's the New Living Translation version of, of 6.9. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? But now let's get to what we're really going to talk about tonight, and that is words that are not in the Bible. And I don't know if any of you have talked to maybe a, maybe a Jehovah Witness at your door. Has anybody had that privilege, pleasure? Now, I know for some of us as Christians, we're a little bit intimidated, and part of the reason is because, you know, as, a, as somebody who is, is caught in that, in that uh, cult, they are taught that they have to do that. They're driven to do what they do uh, because they earn their salvation through their works, but what else they do is they train for that. And sadly, they train a lot of times better than we do to defend our faith to them. Let me say it that way. Because you know what you believe. You're probably just not ready to put it right out there on somebody's doorstep. But they are. So a lot of times that can be intimidating. And I know a lot of us probably avoid them. There was a season of my life where I was um, single and I liked to get my laundry done all at once. Anybody else do that? So I used to get up... We, at this church I was working at, we had a men's breakfast, kind of like what we do now, 5.30. And so, you know, at 6.30, I would just do my laundry at the laundromat. And you get it all done in an hour. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but it's awesome. It's done, folded, done. So, um, but you know who else is at the laundromat dropping off little books? Is the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they'll drop off their uh, Watchtower magazines. And so what I would do is collect them all, of course, and dispose of them properly and, and then also, any chance I got, I would just try to engage whoever was dropping them off. Well, it's usually the lower-level people dropping those off, you know. And so eventually, you know, I got, got into the higher people who were really took a long time to talk to because they're just so well-trained. But, but you may run into somebody someday, as a Jehovah Witness is, is typical of this, and one of the arguments they will use against Christians is they will say, well, you believe things that aren't in the Bible. And one of them they'll talk about is this, the rapture. Because you realize that word is not in the Bible. It's not in there. So they'll say you believe something that's unbiblical because you believe in the rapture and it's not even in the Bible. And they're right in the sense that the word rapture is not in the Bible. But let me show you just some things the Bible does talk about. For instance, in Luke 17, we used this verse last week. Jesus himself said, talking about the end, end the, well, he's talking about the rapture. He says, uh, that night, two people will be asleep in one bed and one will be taken, the other left. Can you see that phrase, taken? Okay, two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Paul says, now, dear brothers and sisters, 
let us clarify some things about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how, will we, we, how we will be gathered to meet him. So, as Christians, if we were to talk about this happening, we might, I mean, what would you call it? The gathering, right? The taken up? <laughs> the taken? Sounds like a scary movie. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul also says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up. There's the caught up part again. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever, so encourage each other with these words. So the truth is, the word rapture isn't in the Bible, but we have used that word to describe this event. Which, Whether you can call it catching up, you can call it uh, caught up, you can call it the, the gathering, the, whatever you want to call it. But that's what we're talking about is the rapture. That's what it is. Here's another one, and this is one which um, I've had one conversation with a, um, with a Muslim about this because they believe that they're the only uh, true monotheistic, monotheistic religion. Well, them and I guess it's, uh, Judaism, but then they don't believe that we're truly monotheists, so we don't worship the same God because we believe in the Trinity. And so the word Trinity, you may, may not have known this, is not in the Bible. It's just, it's not there. You will never find in any page, anywhere in scripture, the word Trinity. So a Jehovah Witness might come and say to you, you believe in something that's not true because that word's not in the Bible. So I, I refrained from putting the literally 50-some scriptures that allude to the Trinity here before you tonight because that's, that's not really what I wanted to show you tonight. But there are so many scriptures that allude to this, but I, I, I couldn't resist at least showing you some. Starting off here in Genesis one twenty seven, there's a very curious phrase. Let us make man in our image. Uh, the, the writer here, we believe, is Moses recording this words of God himself, and he intentionally puts a plural pronoun in here, and he didn't have to. Something very important to understand. He didn't have to say plural pronouns here. He did on purpose. Another thing to think about is, uh, and I'm just referring to this, but when Jesus was baptized... God the, from, uh, the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. Of course, Jesus was there. So God the Son is in the water, and then God the Spirit descends like a dove. So you see the three persons of the Trinity there. And then Jesus himself tells the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, remember who wrote this? Paul, a good Jew. So if, if there wasn't such a thing as this triune being God, this three parts in one God, he wouldn't have done this. He wouldn't have said anything even close to this. Um, Ephesians, Paul again. There was one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father um, of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he's mentioned the Spirit and God the Father. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you see how he uses all those phrases interchangeably? Now, I know for some of us, maybe you're thinking, Pastor Dennis, this is one of those concepts that I've always been told I can't understand, and I just don't know if I can believe something I can't understand. And we've, we've talked about this, of course, on Wednesdays before, but there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to be, it's going to be difficult to understand. But I just want to encourage you and challenge you in the sense that it is in there. It's in there a lot that there are these three parts to God, yet they're one. Now, 
for us, it could be confusing, and I could give you some of the classic uh, examples of things that are different parts but one, but, but none of them really fit well. You know, like you could say an egg. Some people have used an egg. So you've got the shell, you've got the yolk, you've got the white. That's not really a good example, though, because those are really, really different things, even though they're one. You might say ice and water and steam, because they're all three parts to water, but they're still water, which, again, that's close probably, but I, I look at it like this. Um, I think most of us, at some level, maybe have watched a science fiction movie or a TV show, and you've at, le- at least let your mind consider the possibility that there's another being that's different than us somewhere. Why, why wouldn't God be different? I've always wondered that. It seems like the, most, the people who are most vehemently arguing against the possibility for God are ones that are all into that kind of stuff. And I'm looking at them thinking, really? And you can't accept that there might be a being out there that's different than us? I mean, to me, I look at it like this. If he's God, he's probably going to be a lot different than us. Yes, we have his image, and there's part of him in us, but the truth is, I don't have really any problem with him being really, really different. And if he's three parts in one and exists that way, and because I can't get my mind around it, doesn't keep me at all from believing in him. Uh, Let me just show you a couple other spots. In Jude, uh, next to the last book of the Bible there, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Here's the thing. We often use words or phrases to define biblical concepts. We do it all the time. And people do it all the time with every discipline. I don't care if you're talking about medicine or dance or whatever you're talking about. We all use words to define a concept, to make the concept easier to understand or easier to grasp or easier to communicate to other people so you don't have to go into all the detail about it. You, you attach a word to it. So when a Jehovah Witness says to you this sometime at your door, you might just kind of walk them through that whole concept. Because the fact is, there's a lot of words like that. Like the word Bible. Is it in the Bible? It's not in there. But we use that word to refer to all the books that we call the Bible, the collection of books. I mean, the Jews call the Torah the Torah, the first five books. They have the law, the prophets, but the Torah is not called the Torah in there. It's referred to as, by Jesus as the law, but the word Bible is not even in the Bible. Um, the concept of God knowing everything, omniscience, him being all-knowing. That word omniscience isn't in the Bible, but he's described as all-knowing quite a bit. Um, let's see. Um, omnipotence, him being all-powerful. So if you were to talk to a Jehovah Witness, person, for instance, you might just ask them, do you think um, God is omnipotent? And they would say, yes. I said, well, that's not in the Bible either. I'm sorry, that word's not in there, so you believe something that's not in the Bible. But it is in the Bible. That's the thing. And they're, they're wrong about that. You could just point that out. Omnipresence. Most of the qualities of God that we have termed like this are not actually termed like that in the Bible. They just describe who he is. Um, the concept, the word atheism isn't in the Bible. But the Bible does talk about atheism, doesn't it? For instance, in Psalm 14.1, it says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. The whole concept of divinity, the, the Godhead, um, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. Man, I just threw one scripture in there that talk about the divinity of God and how different he is than us. Um, the fact of the incarnation, that Jesus came, that word incarnation is not in there. Emmanuel is in there, God with us, which means the same thing, but in the beginning was the word, or in the beginning the word existed already. The word was with God, the word was God. 
um, the whole idea of monotheism. I understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. That's a concept that we describe with that one word, which is the same thing we do with the Trinity, which is the same thing we do with the rapture. But here's what I want to talk to you about tonight. The sinner's prayer. Now, I'm not trying to offend anybody because I use this prayer. But you, you realize this prayer is not in the Bible. And I was talking with an old student of mine who's now a pastor in a church in another denomination. And he was giving me a hard time about this. And I just, I just we had a good time laughing on the phone. I was laughing more than him. But he was, he was frustrated that we still use this sinner's prayer idea. And he kept saying, it's not in the Bible. You're creating false conversions. I said, really? How do you, how do you see that? But let, let me walk through it with you. The, let's look at Scripture and what Scripture really says. Um, these are just some of, the, uh, some of the ideas about how we become Christians. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled, so, and, and the kingdom of God is, in, is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, that word gospel means the good news. And what it means is defined a few times in the New Testament as being God coming down to earth with us, God redeeming his people. That is good news. The fact that Jesus would die for our sins, save us, that is good news. That's the gospel. Okay, here's another example. In Acts 16, 6 to 12, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, oh my goodness, I hope that wasn't, okay. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So again, he's talking about a concept, the gospel, and he's saying you need to believe in it. You see how this works? I'm taking you somewhere, so just stay with me for a minute here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's the gospel, right? We know that. That's what Christians believe. Okay, And after he brought them out, now this, this is referring to uh, Paul and Silas when they were put in prison. Do you remember that story where they were put in prison and then, then uh, they were singing hymns in the night and the, the jail shook and their chains fell off and the doors opened and the jailer was going to kill himself because he was responsible for them. And they said, no, everybody's still here. So he says, after he brought them out, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. So here's the question for you tonight. How do you know you're saved? Because here's what my, my former student said. He said, Pastor Dennis, you treat the sinner's prayer like a magical prayer. I said, what, what do you mean? And here's what he said. He goes, you act as if somebody, if you can get them just to say those words that boom, they're saved. It's as if it's a, if it's a, a magical saying that if you just say it right, you, you get the outcome you want. Now, let me, let me help you understand what, where he's coming from on this. See, when we do the sinner's prayer, you could, you could pray it with me, right? You know what I'm talking about. What we normally talk about with the sinner's prayer, you, you want people to confess their sin. So you want them to say, you want them to admit that they believe in Jesus. It's Jesus, I believe in you. I'm sorry for the sins I've committed. I want your salvation and your forgiveness to cover me. 
I want you to come in my heart and live with me forever. I want to be changed. I want to be different. And there's a lot of ways to say it, but that's basically this, the sinner's prayer, right? And then what he said is, he says, but that's no guarantee that they mean it or that they've really changed. And that's where I really laughed. I said, well, okay, you got me. You're right. I can't make sure that people mean it, can you? No, you can't. But, but I know that when people are coming to an altar and they, if they've taken stock of who they are in their sin and what they've done wrong, then that is different. So he and I talked about this quite a bit because um, what he said was, and I do agree with him in this, he said, what we've done at times is we've cheapened the gospel to the point where we've made it almost too easy because we so desperately want people to experience what we've experienced and we so desperately want them to come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and we want them, their lives changed, that we, we sell it in a way as come to Jesus, it'll be peace and goodness and joy and everything will be wonderful if you just say this prayer. That's what he's accusing us of doing. And I, you know, I tried to tell him, well, that's not what I do. That's not what we're doing. But I do understand what he's saying. And maybe you do too, because here's what could happen. It could be that someone comes and we misrepresent the fact that, no, 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 we're really talking about sin. Sin is real. And we all have sinned. That's why when we really present the gospel, we should really go into detail and talk about the fact that all have sinned, including you, including me. And I've had people say, but Pastor Dennis, you know, our sins are all different. I say, well, yeah, that's true. And you may judge your sins better or worse or different than mine. But the truth is, all of us are sinners. We have all sinned. And you all know that the wages of sin is death. Everybody has to pay for that sin. So we walk them through this idea of what real repentance means. And I have to agree in the sense that if you rush this part and people don't really understand what they've done wrong and what the sin is, then it's really no guarantee that they're going to want to turn away from the sin because they're not going to see it as bad. They're not going to see it as something that needs to be turned away from. And they're going to, in a lot of ways, not really fully appreciate Christ's sacrifice for them. Because if they don't really think they've done anything all that wrong, then him dying was almost a waste of time or him dying was, was superfluous to what they did because it, it just didn't seem, the, the punishment didn't fit the crime. You see how that works? Because we do live in a day and age where most people don't think that they're that bad. Because if you ask the, the average person on the street, hey, um, if, if, you were to, if there is a heaven, do you think God would let you in there? Vast majority of people would say, yes, he would let me in. And if you were to ask them next, why would he let you in? What would they say? I heard a lot of you say it, because I'm a good person. That's what people think. That's what the world thinks, that that's how you get in. It's, it's almost like a ledger, a, a God ledger, where if you do enough good things against enough bad things, that you're going to get in. It's almost like that whole concept of karma, where if I do enough good, I can overwhelm the bad that I've done, and I get to go in. But that is not Christianity. So if we have unfortunately maybe misrepresented that to you, or, mis, or maybe you have misrepresented that to a friend, then yes, they don't really fully understand what repentance means. They wouldn't have fully repented of their sin because they wouldn't have realized that they really did something that terrible or that wrong. One, one way you could do this is you could walk through with somebody and, you know, Ten Commandments, we referred to it a minute ago. And, you know, obviously not every one of those would necessarily fit every person, but you might ask anybody, have you lied? I mean, have you lied? 
yeah. I mean, everybody in here has lied at one level or another. What most people will say is they'll say, well, yeah, but just a little one, right? Not a really bad one. You know, like when my mom asked, does this look good on me? And I just said yes. Okay. But, but that's not what really what we're talking about. And I think for most people, if you can get them to be seriously, really honest, they will be honest and say, yes, okay, yes, I've, I've said a lie. And then what you might want to do is show them, well, Scripture is really clear about the fact, and you could even take them to the Ten Commandments to say, God says that this is, this is his rules, and if it's his heaven, he gets to create the rules. And if you've lied, this is where you really get people, what does that make you? And nobody really wants to say it at first, but... Eventually, you might be able to get them to say, well, I guess a liar. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Okay. If, if maybe you have lied. Okay. Have you ever coveted something? Have you ever envied something or wanted something that somebody else has? Well, most people have done that as well. You know, you can go right through the list. Have you ever stolen something? You know, and at some level, somebody's, most people have stolen something at somewhere. And what does it make you? Uh, a thief. What I've seen happen with people is it starts to dawn on them. Wow. I thought it was pretty good, but I guess by that standard, I'm not that good. Because most people's standard is, it's either I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, and then the very next thing they add to the standard is, but I'm for sure better than her or him. See how that works? And when people are doing that, they're never going to really be truly repentant and sorry for what they've done, because they're not going to own it. They're not going to see the seriousness of it. And if they don't see the seriousness of it, they're not going to see why it was so important for Christ to die. And Christianity will not make sense. It really doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up. I mean, why go through all the pain? Why go through all the suffering? Because what I did wasn't that bad. I mean, really, compared to most of what people do, it's not that bad. I mean, I only do a little bit, right? But that's how most people think. And then what you could do is take them to you know, Matthew, and show them where Jesus says, because you could ask them, have you ever, you know, lusted after a woman? And then they might say, well, no, or whatever, and well, have you committed adultery? And like, no, and well, Jesus said, even if you've lusted after you've committed adultery, and what does that make you? You know, I've watched guys go like, well, I guess an adulterer. Well, then what do you need to, to clean that sin for you to really become free of that? That's where it comes down to, where Jesus, where Jesus said, and then all of the other quotes I put up there said, you need to repent. You need to tell God, yes, I did these things. That's hard for most of us humans to do, to really admit, I did this, to own it. The next thing is the belief part. Now, what I, what I want to talk about with belief for a minute is, the idea that they had for belief is totally different than most modern Americans. Most of us as modern Americans, we're talking about a mental agreement to a set of facts. We, okay, I agree that that is true. That's not what they meant. What they meant is if you believe it, that means your life changes, that your belief translated into direct action that changed everything you did. So it wasn't just, yes, I believe it. It's, yes, I believe it, and now I will move on this. I change everything I'm doing. So... I know this is a corny example. I should have showed you a video clip. How many of you saw the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark one where they had Sean Connery? You remember that? And they, go to, they actually went to, um, it, it's, in, um, it's, it's that, that carved out um, church in uh, Ethiopia. And, and they showed this thing where he had to walk out on these steps. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? It's corny. But he's stepping out. But he, the thing is, he has to step out and the 
the steps won't appear. It looks like he's stepping into this abyss, but they won't appear unless he actually steps. So he could have said, yes, I believe those steps are there, but he wouldn't have gotten across if he did that. The fact is he had to actually do something with his belief. And for most of us, we, we say we believe, but it doesn't change anything. Now think about this for a minute. You've probably known someone who you've talked to about Christianity, or maybe they're a, a Christian, and I say that with those air quotes that I hate, but I say that because, well, I was, okay, I was, there's a guy who came and helped, uh, helped us do some work at the church today, and in the car on the way home, it, it was kind of cute because he just said, hey, do you think so-and-so, it's some girl actor, is a Christian? And I just started laughing because I knew, I knew what I was talking about tonight. I'm like, how would I know if she's a Christian? You know, I, I don't know her. I don't know anything about her. I don't know what she, it, it's, it's a kid show called Jesse, and I don't even know her name, but he, he said her name, and then I recognized it, and I said, I don't, I don't know. And he said, well, I think she probably is. I said, okay, why do you think that, you know? And he said, well, because I saw some picture, and she had, you know, and she had like a, it, it had a Christian-looking saying on her shirt. I just, I said, well, yeah, you know, maybe she is. But isn't this sad? Because that means nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, how many stars have you seen, you know, get an award and say, I want to thank God for this. And you're looking at them and you know that they are not Christians by the way they live. You know they are not living it. They may believe Jesus is the son of God, but their belief is only in their head. It's not in here and it doesn't act out. It doesn't move them or change anything about the way they act. Nothing. Let's go to this next step here. I mentioned the life change. And the fruit. Here's the thing. Oh, man. You know, the world tells us not to judge all the time, doesn't it? Yet Jesus told us to be fruit inspectors. Look, look at what he said. You can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. That's Matthew 17, 6. Jesus specifically said that you will know who they are by their fruit, by what they do. Now, pastor is famous for saying this. He says, we like to judge um, our motives, ourselves by our motives and other people's by their actions, right? And we typically do that because we don't know what their motives were. We just, we just think we know. But here's the thing. We will be judged by what we do. So this is harsh a little bit. And I apologize, I'm not trying to offend you, I'm just trying to say, if you believe in Jesus, that's great. I should have thrown the scripture up there, because, you know, the devil believes in Jesus, right? You know that, right? In fact, I had a theology professor say once, he goes, actually, the devil has probably really way better theology than we do. Do you ever think about that? Like, he knows the truth. He knows it all. And he still is the devil. And he's still going to hell, and he's still going to be tormented for whatever and he's still going to drag a bunch of people down with him, including some of us. That is true. He gets it. He knows. And he still is who he is. So if you believe, that's awesome. But that's only partway there. You need to be further there than that. And if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, I'm glad you have. <laughs> but that prayer itself isn't what makes us Christian. It's if you mean what it says. And that's where my, my former student, when I laughed at him, I was just saying, well, yeah, of course, if you don't mean it, then it doesn't mean anything. Duh. Of course not. But the truth is, there are people who pray it and act it and don't live it. It doesn't show in their actions. 
And that's the, that's the bottom line. That's where it all comes down to. Can people tell by what you do, by what you say? Finally, this um, knowing without doing is foolish. I don't use that word very often. I, I guess I was always kind of conditioned by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, you know, if you call somebody a fool or a you know, an idiot in some versions, you know, you're in danger and hellfire. And I know in my house, that was a big, bad word to use. But Jesus uses it. And most of us, anybody grow up in kids' church, seriously, grew up in church? How many of you grew up in church? Okay. You remember the, remember that song that the wise man built his house upon the rock? Remember that? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Okay. And then, okay, do you know what that was about? I don't know why they never told us what that was about in kids' church, but they didn't. I thought I was just being smart and building on rocks. I really did. Like, who would build on the sand anyway? Well, of course you're a fool if you build on the sand. But what did Jesus actually say about that? That was part of a parable where Jesus was telling people, he said, if you hear what I say and don't do it, you're the foolish man who built on the sand. On the other hand, if you hear what I say and do it, then you're the wise man. Okay, here's the thing. We've all heard it, right? Jesus, all those people heard it. Hearing is only this far. It's, it's, it's good, but it's not there. It's, it's not saved. You, you can know everything about God, like I mentioned the devil a minute ago. And that same theology professor, he used to always say, he used to say, um, uh, theology should never just be cranial. He was, he was, he was a fascinating guy. He's, he's from South Africa. So how many of you know Petro here comes to our church? You know, she's from South Africa. So I love talking to her because it just reminds me of him. Exact same accent. And he'd say, theology can't be, I can't even do her accent, but can't be cranial. It has to be pectoral. <laughs> we would all just laugh. Like, I get what you're saying, but it's just funny. Okay, it can't be just here. Head knowledge is worthless unless it's here. And it literally changes the heart and everything else changes from there. Here's, here's the way Jesus put it in Matthew 7, 26. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey, doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on the sand. <laughs> so here's my challenge to us tonight. I want you to, again, shut your eyes. Dave, could you play us some music for a minute? I want us to spend a few minutes tonight in prayer, and I want us to do it because... Um, there is a life change that comes, and I've seen it happen with people praying that sinner's prayer. You know why? Because they meant it. They repented. They knew they were sinners, that they wanted to be different, and they wanted Jesus' sacrifice to pay the price for their sin, and they wanted to live life different from then on. And they were changed. But it really wasn't the prayer. It's because they meant the prayer. Duh. Dan, if you're listening to this. Here's the thing. God changes us. He changes us completely, 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 completely. He changes us. And that change happens sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. But it changes based on what we do with what we hear. You have to apply what you hear. And there are those moments where it makes sense. And there's moments where you read things in Scripture that just speak to you in a new way. There's things that will grab you and arrest your thinking and arrest your mind and convict you of sin and you realize, God, I repent of that. I see how I've offended you and I've, I've taken advantage and I've, 
I've sinned against my family or my, myself or, or you or God, I'm so sorry and I don't want to do that again. And it's a continual process of us laying off parts of our old person and taking on more and more of him. I want to read to you, a, with your eyes closed for a minute, a testimony that I found. Um, it was on a friend of mine's uh, website and his blog of a person who became a Christian and she was a... Um, she was an agnostic, and um, someone had challenged her to read the Bible and kind of really challenged her, why won't you read it? Are you afraid to read it? You know, if you just think it's silly, why don't you just read it? So this is a testimony she wrote, and I, I just want to read it to you, and, and I want you to experience the life change that she experienced, and I want your life change to relate to that, and then we're going to pray that God would change us some more. It says, back in my room, I sat cross-legged in the dark against my bed, mesmerized by the flickering of the single candle lit on my mantle. I watched it turning blue, turning red, turning orange, and even a thread of green. I opened the Bible that my friend had given me to the beginning of the Gospel of John. I didn't feel much like reading the Bible, but if I'm going to be accused of being so smart and whatever, I'm, I might as well make the most of it, and I'm going to read it, I thought cynically. I began reading the more I read, the more I wanted to read. Once the Bible gets under your skin in its powerfully charismatic way, then we all, uh, or perhaps a certain specific passage that particularly spoke to us at a significant moment. For me, as a lover of literature, and that particular night, it was opening the chapter, the first chapter of the book of John. As I sat there in my tiny room, the words started blurring on the page. Before I knew it, tears began escaping my eyes. I tried to blink them away, but they kept coming. I bleaked again hard. The words on the page came into sharp focus. Then everything all of a sudden became very, very clear. I knew that Jesus was who he said he was, plain and simple and true and everlasting. I knew that I wanted to know him. I know, I know him first and then I know him better. I knew that I'd been an idiot, proud and imperfect. Despite all my best efforts, I had been hard on myself and hard on others. Who would have guessed that when you really looked at it, perfectionism, like anything else, could be a sin? Everywhere I turned in the labyrinth, I was met with an impenetrable wall. The only way out was to be lifted up or a ladder out of my want, and there existed no act, no achievement, nothing I could do. The only freedom was in faith. And then I knew what I did not not want. I did not want to return home, wherever that may be, again and again in my life, to no one and finally to nothing of importance. I did not want my life to be empty, a regurgitation of excess, no matter how fluorescent or desperate or existentialist filling of a bucket with a hole at the bottom. I did not want to live according to the meaningless exchange of bodily fluids and sweating among strangers and maneuvering amid pseudo-intimate relationships. Christ offered a bridge over the gap I felt. Sitting there on the floor between myself and my own soul, between my God and me, I wanted to know God and to be known by him, a relationship so intimate that there was no space between him and my soul. But it was not as if I could shut my eyes tight, concentrate, and just make it happen as I, I had done with virtually everything else in my life. From the positives like getting good grades to the negatives like denial, the leap seemed so impossible, so hard too far. Scripture has a way of working 
I prayed and I told him that I was sorry, that I wanted the real thing, the real thing. Lord, help me overcome my unbelief, a simple prayer, so brazen after the complete disregard for the presence and power of the Almighty God in life and in death and everything around me. Not even prayer from belief, but a prayer to overcome disbelief, the lowliest of requests. But at least for me, it was the real thing. And then just like that, I was on the other side, the other end of the chasm. Through me, over me, beyond me, safe and saved. Outwardly, I seemed the same, but inwardly, everything had changed. I wanted to be different, and I wanted to live every moment different from then on. I went to the window and watched the birth of the dawn. Everything, everything appeared in this better light, this brighter light. With your eyes closed for just a minute, I know that's somebody else's story, but if you could remember maybe to your own story and maybe to where you are right now, I'm not inviting you to become saved again because I, I think everybody in here is probably a Christian. What I'm inviting you to do, though, is to take stock of where you are in your life for this moment, for you to judge and take stock of what kind of fruit does that show for you. Maybe as a Christian, you've become a little bit calloused to the sin that we all slip into. You know, Paul mentioned there's sin that we are, are easily, we easily fall prey to. And that's coming from a Christian. So I know that all of us struggle in one area or another. And it seems like once one area gets taken care of, then God shows us, hey, child, now you can work on this. And if that is you and there's something in your life like that, I just simply want you to cry out to him for a moment. We're going to take some time. It's quarter after eight. So you have some time before kids are done and youth is done. I want to invite you to spend, if you would, want some time here at the altar or time in a pew or time at somewhere else in this room. But I just want you to spend some time taking an evaluation. And maybe during that time, you come to some realization and just say, God, I want more of you. I want you to clear up whatever's in my life that needs to be cleared up, whatever that is. I just want to invite you to all stand for a moment. I'm just going to pray a quick prayer with us and invite you to pray. If you want to sit back down where you are, that's fine. Or like I mentioned, come here or sit up here, whatever's convenient or comfortable for you. Father, we come before you as Christians who want to be closer to you. We want, we want our lives, our fruit.